Stay hungry, stay foolish. Once again, thank you to our partner, Zai. Zai is a global fintech that's innovating within its area of expertise, building integrated financial services for digital native and non-native businesses. Check them out at hellozai.com. Welcome back to part four of this masterclass with Art Kleiner. I'm having so much fun doing this, but just to say to you, we're through about four chapters of the book. That's how deep with detail that this book is. And Art and I were just having a chat now, pondering what to call this chapter, this episode. And Art has kindly offered the name Pierre Vock and the Origins of Scenario Planning, which is an ideal title for this chapter. Firstly, welcome back. Good to have you back again. Terrific to be back here. And, uh, and great to see <clears throat> that this will all be, you know, here we are, we're, we're creating something that looks back on a episodes that people don't really think about that much, but that had a lot of influence. So important, man. And, and you know, I, I had such you sparked that in me, that curiosity, I found your book, got deep into it, went down some rabbit holes. I found some old footage of Pierre Vock. We'll explain who he is in a little while. I took some excerpts that I'm going to infuse into the show, found some old HBO articles from Vock from 1985. And it was just a wonderful experience going back. And some of the challenges that he experienced are the exact same challenges that many heretics experience in organizations today. But I'm going to tee you up many times today with some beautiful extracts from this chapter. And in a chapter entitled Mystics, the focus is Royal Dutch Shell and their scenario planners from 1967 to 1973. The heresy they committed, awareness must be cultivated because the future cannot be predicted or planned in a mechanistic manner. You warm us up with an excerpt and I'd ask our audience to listen to this and replace the word mystic with change maker, disruptor, corporate heretic, or strategist, perhaps, and change, change the word church to organization, the organization that person works for. And art begins this chapter as follows. To be a mystic in 14th century Europe was to be more devout than the faithful. You would embrace ritual and ceremony with a fierce, scrupulous, almost unworldly joy. But your goal would not be devotion or sacrament. You would seek, above all else, awareness. You would want to see more deeply into the world, more thoroughly into reality. In that time, this meant learning to see God directly finding your way to direct divine presence. The journey would begin with the control and suppression of worldly desires through meditation, prayer and strict observance, you would cultivate the spiritual self. After going as far as possible on your own, it was said you must reach a point like a stopping place on a journey where you could pause and wait. Then God would come and lift you the rest of the way. Eventually, you would have to return from the meditative journey. You would present yourself to the local abbot and villagers to tell them about what they too could see if only they found the discipline to look past the blinders of their daily thoughts. As a mystic, you would have the desire, what human coming down from the journey would not have it, to see your own new comprehension of reality ripple out into the community around you. 
if you could only find the words to describe it. Mystics, yes, you, the corporate heretic, never find the words to spell out everything they've seen. And yet communities ardently remember the mystics who lived within them. Ordinary people, non-travelers have changed their lives then as now, because of what a mystic said to them. The church establishment leaders did not admire the mystics who made them appear weak or irresolute, but they recognized that they needed them. The mystics for their part had to be careful not to undermine the church. It sheltered them and made their journeys possible. For centuries, the priests and the mystics lived in this uneasy truce. What a way to start that chapter and what a way to spark the imagination for what it's like still today for the corporate heretic. Over to you, Art, to give context to this chapter. Well, the corporate heretic now has something that the people I was writing about didn't have then, which is the idea that things are going to change all the time. It's, you know, the we think of the 60s now as a time of stability, but at the time it was an immense period of political change, political turmoil, assassinations, and, you know, uprisings in Europe, and um, youth rebellion, and, um, you know, the war in Vietnam, and the protests against it, and, and all of the civil rights movement in the US, and similar um, burgeoning movements in, in Europe. And we kind of think, though, when it came to business, everything was flat. The end of World War II had left the United States Corporation in a very well-protected position. And in Europe, the leading companies kind of quickly moved up into a similar role. Some like uh, Volkswagen, you know, kind of shed their, uh, their association with um, Nazi Germany. Some like Unilever, began their, you know, a, a very steady rise. And it was the time of the seven sisters, the major oil companies, only three of whom are left today, one of which is Royal Dutch Shell, and the other two are Exxon and BP. And Royal Dutch Shell was a combined um, British and Dutch company. It had come together in order to keep the company and the um, oil reserves out of the hands of Germany during World War II. And it had been kind of rising ever since. And it was a very complex organizational entity. And the people, the executives who worked there were really sharp, well-educated, keenly um, observant engineers and accountants and a few people who looked at geopolitics. Because in order to be in the oil business, you had to, you know, the days when you could drill for oil in the United States were pretty much gone. It wasn't profitable anymore. The days when you would drill for oil in the North Sea or that you would have fracking were not yet here. Or we're just beginning in terms of the North Sea. And so the availability of oil depended on countries largely in the Middle East. You know, Iran, Saudi Arabia, 
Iraq, and a few others. And these countries, you know, this was the period when the Middle Eastern, uh, you know, rulers suddenly became these global wealthy figures. There's a great scene in Amacord, you know, Fellini's movie, where these like vast numbers of people for a Saudi ruler kind of come into a hotel and the ruler's like this tiny little man at the, at the end of the procession and everybody is kowtowing to him. And that was the world. It was very predictable. Every year, the price of oil was the same, $2 a barrel. Every year, the profits were the same. And when people were predicting the future, they were predicting that things would basically stay the same and they would just say, give me the number. Give me the number so I can put in my spreadsheets, which were done by hand at the time, my ledger pages, and make the calculations for how much we're going to spend on investments in refining and you know drilling and all of that. And in order to see that something was going to change, it's not like today, right? I mean, today, if you ask any business person, is your business going to be the same two years from now as it is to right now? They're going to say no, almost every business person. They may not act on it, but they'll know. Because no matter what happens, the semiconductor, the computer, the internet are going to change everything. New competitors are going to come up. Technology is, you know, high tech companies are going to come in uh, the way you do things, you know, the opportunities with something like Bitcoin to manage your ledgers or blockchain, I mean, to manage your ledgers. If you don't do it, someone else will. And you probably don't understand half of what you're doing. And it's embedded in, you know, you've got AI embedded in your production and every now and then the pandemic comes along and your people are going to be communicating through media like what we're doing right now through Zoom. And it wasn't like that. It was possible to be asleep and think you were awake. And into this mix come Pierre and some of his colleagues, which be which who were all coalesced in a department called group planning in London in starting about 1969, 1970. And they, their heyday was the 70s. And they predicted three things. They predicted that the price of oil was going to go way up and there were going to be problems. That was in 1971, 72. They predicted that the price of oil was going to go up even further and you know the world was going to have a, a kind of a crisis. Um, that was in the late 70s. And then they predicted that the price of oil was going to fall and it was going to be a different kind of crisis. And they predicted that in the early 80s and it happened in the mid 80s. Those three things brought Shell, Royal Dutch Shell, from being the weakest and least profitable of the oil companies, the majors, to being the leader of the pack, which is where it stayed more or less for another 20 years. Art, I'd love to, before we get into Vach himself, the, the character and his background and Gurdjieff and all those type of characters, I'd love to go back to the, 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 the moment in time 
this arrested moment in time where, for example, Jersey, which became Exxon later on, we're working on a 25 year strategy, <laughs> which, which, by the way, some people are working on five year strategies today. And I'm just going to go and you cannot plan five years, you may have a direction, but you do not have a strategy. But one of the Jersey men, one of because they were predominantly men who worked in oil. Um, one of the Jersey men from this company Jersey, which became Exxon, casually remarked, what's Shell doing about its futures? And this got back to Shell HQ. And the question lingered with some of Shell's managing directors. And they decided at that moment that Shell should have its own in house studies on the long term future. And for one of those studies, they asked the personnel department to find someone with imagination. And, the, <laughs> and then further on in the book, you add this and, and I, I wanted to link it back to mystics, because that little excerpt that you start each chapter with is very deep, but you have to look through it like a lens when you read that chapter. And you say later on, like mystics, they would devote themselves to developing a new method for seeing the patterns around them more clearly. Like mystics, they would have then to communicate what they have seen in a way that would make sense to the rest of the managers and make them pay attention. Otherwise, the corporation could face debilitating losses. And you tell me, you tell us in the book then that when you did your interviews with some shell veterans, they still believe to this very day that the survival of the enterprise depended in those years of crisis on this shell ability, and the ability of the mystics. So they did actually act. And that is the key difference. And organizations that have survived have shown this trait of taking action when they get information, or as Vok would call it, we'll talk about it later. After they breathe in, they breathe out. Whoa. So what sets apart? So first of all, we know when a CEO comes into a company freshly, that company may suddenly rise or fall. In other words, the leadership matters. And what is it that matters most? Some of it is how they work with other people. But a lot of it is what they see. And what they do about what they see. And in a way, you can't teach it. You can, you can teach some practices. You can teach people how to become better at seeing. But you can't teach people how to go through a process and automatically see what's going to happen more effectively. And it really matters. I mean, why do people um, really give a lot of credit to Steve Jobs and to Elon Musk and to Bill Gates, you know, it isn't because of their managerial skill. It is a little bit because of their obsessive obsessiveness and their energy, but a lot of it is because they see things that other people don't quite see the patterns the way they do. And therefore they make decisions that nobody else makes. And that's a lot of what Pierre brought. In a large company, you have people who are, you know, you have a lot of people who are there because they have a reputation for being able to see things. And a lot of times they get put in that position and they make a habit of talking about things that they don't really know. 
but they kind of guess. I've been there. I mean, I worked for a large company and I was sometimes asked, what do I think is going to happen? And I was always kind of dependent on whatever article I had edited, you know, in the last six months before. Um, and it's easy to think, you know, to have a little bit of a Dunning-Kruger effect and to think you know more about the future than you actually do. The group planning people, they were led, the, the, on the corporate side, they were led by a manager named Jimmy Davidson, who had a very high tolerance for eccentricity. And on the creative side, the research side, they were led by the two people I kind of, they, they were had a number of extraordinary people. But the two main leaders, uh, one was Ted Newland, who is uh, originally from Argentina. He was Anglo-Argentine. And he had been in corporate life for his whole life and at Shell most of it and had managed facilities and was a sort of very cynical, acerbic kind of um, uh, iconoclastic spokesman and very kind of intuitive. And then you had Pierre Vach, who was both a mystic and a highly analytic individual. And whereas Ted had kind of gone into the corporate world and had worked his way up. Pierre came into that job first in Shell Francaise and then in Royal Dutch. He got promoted after about a year to the corporate central. And he was, he basically took the job at age 40 because if you're not 40, if you don't have a, a job by 40 in France, you know, your pension is affected. You may have a problem with your pension. So he knew he had to work for someone. And he went to Shell because they would basically not tell him what to do too much. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, so there are, there are stories in the book about how, you know, he, he was offered a promotion. He said, yes, but first I'm going to take a year off and just go live in Japan. <laughs> and it was kind of like, take it or leave it. You want me? You, <laughs> And he would dictate the terms of his... Um, of his employment and in order to be able to do that he and ted had to demonstrate that they saw that they understood what was going to happen they had to have it be substantial you know you, you can't get away with bs in a company like shell even if you're one of the managing directors and they had to show that they could communicate it in a way that others could hear it. And even then, Pierre would say later, you know, I felt like half the time or most of the time, my words were like water on a stone. They made no impression whatsoever. But they made enough impression to, to keep the company, um, to bring the company into being a leader of its industry. I'm going to share a little excerpt from Vok, actually uh, an excerpt of Vok speaking to give people a flavor of him. And uh, maybe we'll we'll discuss that but then also we'll discuss what he says actually and then also i'd love to dive a little bit into his background because it's interesting the way you start that chapter about there's there's personal development you do on yourself like tolstoy said famously that everybody wants to change the world but nobody wants to change his, his or herself and and they're you know you have to change as you said your mental model to change what you see you change the lenses so you need to do some personal work. And I'd love to, to share that because that was very interesting about Vok because 
those new lenses that he added, and actually it was more about taking away his spiritual journey, it was about taking away veils of what we think is reality so he could see clearly. That, that I found very fascinating because I find that trait with many corporate heretics that I know, and this is why you find the most successful, and by successful I don't mean in a paycheck, but the most successful people are constant learners or unlearners. They're constantly doing this journey of self-discovery in order to see the world as it truly is. I'll, I'll share Vach and then I'll let you unpack this. There's loads to unpack. Oh, this is great. So you tell us. Shell needed an intellectual maverick who could speak to Shell managers throughout the world to help them learn how to be prepared before the crisis struck. They found their person. He worked in Paris as a director of economic research for Shell Francaise, the French operating company. He was unique within Shell, a former magazine publisher trained in spiritual disciplines and government administration, familiar with Japan and India and knowledgeable about Shell's business problems. He was also a magnetic man. His name was Pierre Vauc. So before I throw to you, I'm going to share this little excerpt. Let me start with a strong statement. It is impossible to forecast the future, and it is foolish to try to do so. Put yourself in the shoes of a manager. He's getting the most recent outlook for the future, and he knows from past experience that next year is going to change completely, and then planning becomes a kind of dead religion, a kind of pure ritual in which nobody believes in. In economic or business forecasting, it is very similar to weather forecasting. The real value of forecasting is to anticipate stormy changes. If you anticipate just business as usual, the value of forecast is very little. I like to collect little pieces of wisdom. Because from experience, I know now that the most important ingredient in planning is not econometrics. It's not technological forecasting. It's not system analysis. It is wisdom. This is an Arab proverb, which says in one sentence, more than I could say in half an hour. Those who foretell the future lie, even if they tell the truth. Even if they tell the truth. The most dangerous forecasts are those who have just been right. Because most probably they have been right for the wrong reason and you are tempted to believe them. Brilliant. Brilliant, isn't it? So good. Art, over to you to unpack that. Just wanted to give our audience a flavor of the man, the sound of him. Those who tell you the future and they're correct, you shouldn't believe them. <laughs> the hot hand fallacy. The ones who have just been right are the most dangerous because they start to believe themselves and you'll start to believe them. And yet, where would we be without guesses about what's going to come next? Um, so he's, you know, and it's interesting. That's the beginning of a speech in which he's about to forecast the future. So he's starting. It's not a disclaimer like, um, you know, be aware that I went through some research and this may be wrong and I'm going to, you know, it's not a CYA kind of thing. It's I am dangerous. And if I'm effective, you're going to act on what I say, and you are therefore going to be dangerous. He doesn't mean dangerous because you're wrong. He means dangerous because you're right. 
And think about all of the dangerous people who have told the future in the years since that video was made, which was probably around 1980, I would guess. You know, this is the way things are going to play out if we do this now. How many economists and political leaders and business leaders have essentially said, I am going to make a bold move because of X and had tremendous consequences, good and bad at the same time. So that's Pierre putting into words what we all know, but nobody says. And at that time, so you mentioned, you know, his early background, and I'm just going to pack a lot of things into a couple of sentences and say, you know, the threads that lead to scenario method that Pierre was kind of the primary, um, one of the primary developers of. Go back to Herman Kahn and the future of nuclear war. They go back to Leo Rostin, who wrote The Joys of Yiddish, who was a screenwriter uh, who came up with the word scenario as a use for this imaginative, as, a, as the term for this imaginative story about the future. They go back to a number of spiritual traditions and Pierre would, you know, he lived with Gurdjieff for a while. He studied with Gurdjieff during World War II. Um, but when asked about it, he said it was more important than that were the traditions of, uh, in his case, uh, uh, mystic in Japan, a Japanese um, person who he wouldn't name and he was very private about, but who, you know, had sort of taught him to walk into a garden let's say, and see the interrelationships and the dynamics. And the other part of it, which wasn't in the age of heretics because I didn't know enough, was the long trend of mutual understanding between the West, the East, the South, mainly South Asia, and uh, Native America, each of which had spiritual traditions that had evolved in parallel and largely were ignorant of each other. And each of which was addressing, this is my view, a different kind of pain. So Christianity was addressing the pain of basically what is a human being worth and how do we cope with suffering by having faith in a, um, in a, larger, um, in a larger source. Buddhism was addressing the pain of everyday life by essentially saying, what are the practices that allow us to embrace suffering as simply the way that, you know, that life is and the various practices and concepts were each life changing and each kind of necessary to address, to address that in very different traditions. Um, Hinduism, I, I, I'm already over my skis in, in saying this, but the, and then I've just been reading about some of the Native American traditions and the each, when they came, when people began to meet and talk who came from these traditions, you know, Marco Polo through to, through to Alan Watts, that set in motion a whole body of ferment 
that we're that we're kind of take for granted now. You know, it's not unusual to go to a yoga class in you know the mid American Midwest, right? But it was very unusual even 40 years ago, and it would have been unheard of 100 years before that, while America was going through its own great awakening. So all of these traditions kind of came together in a long period that is coming to fruition in our lifetimes. That's one of the things that makes this period very different from other periods in past history. And Pierre, oddly enough, was part of that. Gurdjieff, G.I. Gurdjieff, a very, um, you know, sort of uh, enigmatic, um, nobody quite knew where he came from, but something like Russian, um, mystic who lived in Paris, had traveled around the world. He'd spent a lot of time studying Sufi um, traditions and practices and Slavic practices and had developed his own sense of what it took to become a person strong enough to live in the forces that buffeted the world. And, you know, whatever we're going through now, Imagine the depression in World War II, at least, and, you know, and before that, the original flu pandemic and before that, World War I, you know, we're like the relative stability of the second half of the 20th century was shockingly stable after what people had been through. And the trauma of that time was in the body, in the behavior. And people like Gurdjieff and many, many others were using awareness to kind of wake people up. And Pierre was one of the first to bring that sensibility into the context of people earning a living, where it's still a, um, a kind of an issue. Um, one of the things that I do is I, I work for a group called Wise Advocate Enterprises, and we cover neuroscience and um, and leadership and the brain-mind relationship between the two, strategic leadership. And strategic leadership is the ability to take a decision in the face of, you know, you don't know what's, what's really going to happen. You don't know what the right decision is. You have to act. And... You have to weigh all the odds, but at the end of the day, you have to be the decision. And a lot of that requires practices that once would have been called mystic. You know, looking for that voice within yourself that can provide guidance, checking to see if you can see yourself the way others do, maintaining the kind of fierce determination to figure out what's going on with the absolute humility that you'll never get it figured out and cultivate. And when you act that way and think that way, it changes, it literally changes your brain patterns, your neural patterns. And people like Pierre understood that and understood that they had to make space for that kind of development for themselves and others. And they had to do it in the context of a 1970s, 1980s oil company 
And yet the times called for it. They, they had, you know, and so they had to find ways in which to make palatable what really was a kind of spiritual quest in the midst of what is the price of oil going to be next year? <laughs> next year. <laughs> I love the way you, you compare it to like, um, self development, if you want to call it that or personal development that we see today. I was a huge fan of Alan Watts, I, I used to fall asleep listening to his beautiful voice, beautiful lectures, they're all available online, highly recommend anybody check out Alan Watts, it's so valuable, so m m many of the concepts. But I, I never thought about that art where, you know, we were saying, imagine how, how difficult it was to live in that period where it was just crises after crisis. Uh, but but there's one thing about that is, it's easier to probably live through crisis after crisis when you've never experienced utopia. We've experienced a pretty stable period in life, and we have something to lose. And I think that's the real difficulty. It's like, I drive a brand new Porsche, and now I'm back in my crappy beat up, you know, Betsy of a car. I know what it was like to experience the joy of, uh, of luxury. And I think that's a huge challenge for people. And that's what happens when when an organization's successful, their victory defeats them, their their the mindset changes. And like you say, the they have to rewrite those neural pathway pathways in order to see things like they really are again. And and I say all that to tee us up for a beautiful piece you talk about Vok here, because you say Vok was obsessed with the art of what he called seeing. You mentioned this. To see Vok would later say meant not merely to be aware of an element of your environment, but seeing through it with full consciousness. By seeing, Vok meant a frame of mind beyond observation, the cultivated ability to connect patterns and causes that contradict our ingrained beliefs. It is not common to see what is there, he would say. Naturally, we look with our minds, with interpretations, inferences, preconceptions, comparisons, expectations, and through all our ex previous experience to see goes beyond liking or disliking. This wasn't an easy matter to learn, he said. By nature, he said, I was not very predisposed to see, he recalled later to his wife, I would have been much more inclined to give myself over to interpretation and to mental constructions. Still, I launched myself into this activity with an enormous zeal. Vak also had the responsibility of communicating awareness to others like the mystic on the hill, or as he put it, to be able to transmit the wisdom into personal and operational teams. He had the task of not just learning himself to see, but to make others see as well. And therein, as you know, well, from your work with Wise Advocate and all the corporates you consult with art, therein lies the huge challenge. Yeah, let's talk about that. Well, okay. So just as a digression, when you were first in that in that bit, Aiden, about how different it is now, and um, how we had that period of relative, I wouldn't call it utopia, <laughs> yeah. but certainly relative um, calm. And um, do you remember the Talking Heads song, the David Burns song, Life During Wartime? Yeah. This ain't no party, this ain't no disco. Yeah. That's the, you know, it came out in 1983. Everything, you know, we were seems whining easy. about. Easy. <laughs> yeah, it didn't seem easy. There were lots of complaints, but um, but look at how difficult it was. You know, I 
I was watching the show Yellow Jackets, which, you know, and I think that's part of the appeal is that, you know, there's a sense by which we're all in this forest now that we didn't bargain for, you know, we're, we're, and, but starting around 1972, business people began, well, Alvin Toffler started writing about future shock and Pierre talked about the rapids and other people talked about permanent whitewater, Peter Vale, and all of these metaphors and then disruption. And, you know, so there was this sense that, yeah, we're going to complain and uh, we're going to say how terrible it is that we have to think this way. And then it's almost as if the universe came back and said, well, now I'm going to give you something to <laughs> complain about. <laughs> you, know? you ungrateful little and clip around the ear. Get back out there, Tom Sawyer, and whitewash the fence. <laughs> Go make the most of this business opportunity. And oddly enough, we are. In Some of us are some of the time. So Pierre and Ted and group planning decided to take that concept seriously. And so they did a lot of research, which I go into in the book. You know, they cultivated people who had unusual perspectives a physician in Iran or a government minister in, you know, Qatar or something. And then they, or Egypt. So they kind of got in under the surface and started to pick up data and patterns. And they were ruthlessly analytical about the price data and the production data and all of that. And they came to the conclusion, basically, this is 71, 72. And I'm going to tell two stories of the many that could be told. I'm going to tell, and these are both stories of knowing what's going to happen and trying to get the world around you to react and what it takes. Okay, so first of all, you have to know what's going to happen. And that means you have to not be too busy to figure it out. This is not a matter of having like a two-day or one three-hour scenario session where you get a, a matrix and you look at, you know, two factors and you say, it's going to be like this or this or this or this. It's more like, what do we know that we don't yet see, but once we see it, it'll click into place. And what Pierre and Ted and the others saw, including one of my mentors, I want to just shout out um, Napier Collins, uh, who is uh, kind of a historian and uh, was one of the major figures at um, at group planning and then with Peter Schwartz and Stuart Brand and Lawrence Wilkinson and others created another firm called Global Business Network um, and helped bring together. He introduced me to Juliet Powell, who is now my partner with Kleiner Powell International. And so what they did at that time is they saw First of all, they saw the conventional wisdom. The conventional wisdom is the oil price is just going to, it's going to get a little bit higher and a little bit higher. They looked at all the factors and they said, in order for the conventional wisdom to come through, there have to be three things that would happen and they all have to happen. There could be no major catastrophe, no oil spills, no tanker collapses, no you know refinery fires. There would have to be agreement among the major oil companies that if they had shortages, they would manage them together and manage supply and really work for supply and not try to undermine each other. And there would have to be agreement among the major oil using countries that they would route and allocate 
oil so it would go where it was most needed and there wouldn't be price shocks. The likelihood of those three things happening was so small that they called it the three miracles scenario. And when they went around to the government ministers, for instance, um, one of the managing directors had worked closely with them, Andre Benar, and he would go to the government ministers and Pierre would go and, and, and they would say, well, you're a big corporation. Why are you telling us? <laughs> what's, what's your angle? Uh, as opposed to, yes, we have a mutual problem. I, can I share an excerpt on that art? Because it's really interesting. I, I had pulled that as well, because I found it fascinating. Also, because of something you're working on, which is who who will watch the watch makers of AI? Is that right? It's um, watching the watch robots, watching the watch robots. And I thought because you know, with AI in particular, there's many, many heretics, or actually not heretics at all, common sense people who are going yeah. to governments, we got to be careful of AI and regulation here. And this this excerpt about those journeys where Vok and Newland went and visited the governments actually jumped out at me. So you said, after the crisis, this was so this paragraph still rings true today for any Cassandras out there listening who are like the Greek myth trying to explain the future, but it sounds like gibberish to people or they just don't want to hear it in the first place. But it goes as follows. We thought Naively at the time, Vok recalled that governments would be wise enough to see what we told them and act immediately on it. Instead, everyone thought we exaggerated. There was the same first reaction everywhere. Why does Shell tell us these horrible stories? They tried to find out what interest we had. And obviously, we had no interest. After all, we were predicting that our property would be nationalized. Secondly, they said, Oh, you exaggerate. It will not come in 1975, it may come in 1980. Finally, the government officials would ask, how can I take advantage of this? One high level politician from Alaska, for instance, wondered out loud whether an impending oil crisis meant they would be in a much better bargaining position for putting out putting through the Alaska pipeline. No one ever seemed to hear Vox's main point that by acting wisely, and in concert, the developed nations could anticipate the crisis and stop it. Now that reminds me of regulatory concerns about AI art, and so much of the crisis we've seen today, we saw it in the media industry, you worked in there, we saw it with if they had acted together, and banded together and worked together against a Google, for example, they would have locked off their content and protected it and may have not seen a crisis there. We see it so much time this desire to work in silos and against each other rather than together, the working together does not happen very often, the crisis always comes from fragmentation. Well, the funny thing is, right? If you have an angle, you're inclined to believe everybody has an angle. And the more that you believe everybody has an angle, the more people feel that just to survive, they're going to have to take an angle and then the whole thing, you know, escalates. And I mean, you left out climate change, right, where, you know, the first people to raise the alarm, were not saying, you know, I have an I have a, an edge an axe to grind an angle of this is a problem. And it rapidly becomes a matter of, you know, follow the money who's trying to do what and people do have an angle. 
enough of the time, the angle matters enough that the whole thing is skewed. And it is an issue where people are looking out for their interests. And there's always some aspect that transcends it. So part of learning to see is learning to see when people are negotiating on behalf of the whole and when they're negotiating on behalf of their uh, approach, their interest. And many people will switch back and forth between the two. And if you're trying to, so with AI, the, this is a book that Juliet Powell and I are co-authoring and we're in the middle of research and we've talked to, she's mostly talked to um, people who are, who have taken that heretical role and in some cases, you know, had to leave companies because of the stance they took on AI or the questions they raised. And as always with issues like that, you don't know how seriously to take it until you start taking it seriously. And then one thing leads to another and you discover this is unconscionable and this is going to empower, you know, self-directed drones that take people out or whatever it may be. So the best example of the positive way this can play is the South Africa story. Pierre gets to a point at Royal Dutch Shell where he's, you know, he's predicted three major catastrophes or been part of it. And it's time for him to go. And he's going to go from there to a very lucrative career, as you can imagine, um, helping companies deal with the factors that could constrain them in the future. One of the companies that asked him to help them is Anglo-American, the South African mining company, and also, you know, one of the largest miners of gold and the largest miner of diamonds and very connected to jewelry. And so he does scenarios with them on the history of the, on the future of the India, of the jewelry business in China and India and various cultural factors. And then he starts to look at production. And in order to look at production, he has to look at the workforce in the mines. And in order to look at the workforce in the mines, he has to look at apartheid in South Africa. And he comes, he and an executive at Anglo-American named Clem Sunter, who published a number of books on this, come to the conclusion reluctantly that the apartheid-based labor, labor that was pulling diamonds out of the mine was akin to slave labor. And that it would not be sustainable. Down, you know, how long can this go on? Well, you know, as Herbert Simon said, you know, if something can't be sustained, it will stop. And at some point, apartheid despite every effort made to preserve it, would stop. And what would happen then? And as they, and they began talking about this with Anglo-American executives and then with others, and they began to, this is about 1980, I want to say 83, 84. So this is, this is a period when, you know, the Sullivan principles are 
active and people are, you know, sort of uh, divesting from apartheid, that movement is just starting. And, and the, the story that they come up with is that there are basically, of all the futures that could happen, they basically divide into two which Clem called the high road and the low road. The high road is something that had never happened in memory, recent in post-industrial memory, which is that the various forces in South Africa, including the current white apartheid government, would decide and realize that they had to come to a peaceful transition and would put in place the measures to do that, which included all the things we later came to know as truth and reconciliation, though they didn't call it that. So all of the grief, pain, trauma, processing, redistribution, recreation, and then all the suffering involved with that would have to happen in a relatively planned way. And if that didn't happen, you know, Rhodesia, here we come. Um, the uh, basically war, civil war, and a very violent one and a very, very difficult one. So they start giving these talks in Anglo-American to various executives. And then, and this is, again, it's the 80s. This is uh, extraction industry. All the executives are men. The men's spouses, their wives mainly, demand to have a presentation on the grounds that they want to know if they should move their children, their families and their children out of the country. And those conversations start to happen. They're happening. They are not the only thing that's happening. There's a lot of activity and a lot of conversations, but they make a contribution. Everyone I talk to, um, so that the transition, when it finally happens, from Mandela in prison to you know Mandela as leader of the country, can happen relatively peacefully and relatively quickly because of all of the groundwork that had been laid and because of a whole country coming to the realization together that their way of life is not sustainable. And Pierre was, I mean, I don't know how involved he was later, but I do know that scenarios all the way through were part of this. You know, let's look at what might happen. Um, a good friend of mine, Adam Kahane, was very involved with the Montfleur scenarios, which Shell co-sponsored, which also um, raised the question of what's going to happen after the transition. How is the government going to create peace and harmony? And I'm not holding up at South Africa as a success story. But the alternative to what did happen at least gave the country a foundation on which it could evolve as a country, as opposed to what might have happened, you know, and uh, a bigger, more brutal Zimbabwe and with many more unknowns. Um, for a while, I was involved in a project to do a kind of oral history of the South African transition, and it, was, it wasn't the right time, and 
more people were needed who were South African in the project. And I'm not sure that one has been done, but the people I talked to at that time were all still coming to terms with the fact that they had seen the future and decided they had to take steps together. That's always for me been a demonstration that amazing things can happen as a result of these conversations. They happen more than we think, but they don't happen enough. And a lot of Pierre's legacy in the end is going to be the kind of person you have to be in order to be that kind of leader or facilitator. Um, when asked what his job was, Pierre would say, I'm the eyes on the wolf at the front of the pack. Beautiful. He didn't mean he was leading the pack. He meant that he was like ahead of them in terms of being able to see what's coming next. And he wasn't the wolf. He was the eyes. Beautiful. You need the whole. He achieved, he achieved the goal of seeing, Do you know, it reminded me of a fellow BK author, Barrett Culler, which is your publisher, D Hawk, who we did a magnificent seven part series with D. I don't know if you know that art, it was just so special, so amazing. We did it last year, he's now 93, still going. And there's a quote I pulled actually, which because it reminded me of Vok presenting these different scenarios. And the goal of presenting the scenarios is that we don't we avoid the most dangerous ones. But D Hawk says the person who fights for a dying cause is admired, supported and honored. The person who fights for a new cause, struggling to be born is misunderstood, reviled and attacked. Nothing is more difficult than taking the lead in a new order of things. And I thought about that so many CEOs, so many execs, get presented this information all the time. But they don't want to hear it. So there's a willful blindness there as well as a cognitive dissonance. So they choose, they go, I'll pretend I don't understand it. I'll pretend it's Cassandra gobbledygook, or else I just don't want to know about it. So I don't have Pierre Vox around my organization. That's a huge challenge. Yeah, I have a perspective on that. I'm a little bit more forgiving, maybe. Um, One of the things we talk about in The Wise Advocate is the mentalizer's paradox. When you're, when you're coming up in an organization, you learn to think about what other people are thinking, which is called mentalizing. It's, a, um, it's one of the things that strategic leaders do. They don't just think about what does my boss want or what do I want or you know, what do my customers want, but like, what are they thinking? Why are they thinking what they're thinking and what are they going to do next? And that's the beginning of putting patterns together. As you get higher and higher in an organization, you mentalize less, right? The administrative assistant mentalizes about the boss. The boss doesn't mentalize about the administrative assistant. And when you start to have people trying to give you what they think you want, you begin to think, I've paid my dues. I know what's going on. I don't have to think as carefully about what people are thinking. But the really great strategic leaders do that all through their careers. 
And they do it in part as a kind of discipline to remind themselves of how little they actually know compared to what they're going to be called upon to do. And the really great ones look for people who can advise them, who are, you know, we say, we call it outside the box, but what it really means is looking, you know, what, what outside the box really refers to is the ability to think about what other people are thinking in groups and individually and what influence they're going to have and what difference that's going to make. And when you start to do that, you enter a, and when you start to do that enough to build up some confidence, you then have to pay attention to your own propensity to get comfortable. And if you've seen enough, you know that you have to do that, but it slips up on you anyway. When I left uh, my last, you know, sort of corporate job at uh, PwC in strategy and business, I didn't realize how comfortable I'd gotten. And it took me about six months to realize that it wasn't just the amenities, you know, the health insurance and the, and the assistant and everything like that. It was the fact that I would now be required to test everything I said before I acted on it. I wouldn't get the kind of support that made it possible for me to make mistakes and not even realize I was making mistakes. And I think that a lot of people get used to that. They get used to making mistakes and we're all in it together and we're all in an organization. It's great to make mistakes, but they get used to making mistakes and they don't learn from it and they don't know that they're not learning from it. And can you blame them? Can you hold them to account? Well, probably if they're making a huge amount of money, maybe you can. But can we, as every corporation needs most of those who work for us, most of those of us who work for every company needs us to transcend our limits. And they need us to look at what people are thinking, not just at what we want and what others want. They need us to look at what they need us to look at what we're thinking ourselves. And you know, and yet this is the place we go to work every day where we draw a paycheck. Can they really ask us to do that? Yeah. I think that's the question that, you know, all the heretics were talking about. <laughs> It sure, sure is. Do, do you know, you know you're, I love the mentalizing. And I said to you before, I'd love to cover Wise Advocate. I, I love the concept. I wanted to just share something with you very briefly. Um, this is a phenomenon. I'll explain it to um, to the audience. So this this is where I grew up, Art. Beautiful part in Dublin. And this is in the garden. So there's a wonderful wooded area in the garden. It was, it's in the Phoenix Park, which is the equivalent of Central Park in New York, say. And I lived in it. I had the amazing privilege to live in it. Again, the problem with privilege, you don't even know you have it. <laughs> so my father was the park superintendent. So he minded all the, the parks and basically was the manager of all these different parks. And I visited him recently and I saw this phenomenon. I was like, oh, what the heck's happening here? So to de describe it for those people who are uh, struggling with their sight or are listening to us, what's happened here is a part of the tree is growing. It's a big bushy evergreen. 
but there's a middle part of the tree that has died away. And I asked my dad, who's a horticulturist, what's going on here? And what's happening is the part of the tree that's grown away from the rest of the tree, from the main body of the tree, is aptly called the leader. And I thought exactly what you said when I saw it, an allergy jumped into my mind. That's what happens. The exact sweet, the C-sweet grows increasingly separated from the organization and certainly from the roots, which are touching customers and the interface to actually the real world. And as a result, you have that mentalizing or the la lack of mentalizing effect. And that's extremely dangerous for organizations. So it just, I just wanted to share because it jumped to mind. And I love mentalizing, by the way, really looking forward to sharing wise advocate, I've, I've one thing left for us art. Well, two, if I can squeeze them in arts granddaughters at home with them. So hence our eagerness to finish up. But art, I'm going to share a little excerpt from Vok again, one that I loved. And then I've a, a finale, a little quote that I have to finish today's episode. So I'll tee up the Vok piece with a little quote about about this. And it's after the crisis at this stage. So after the first crisis, and you said, Vok would conclude his presentation by saying, Look, under every scenario, we will need fewer tankers, he was saying here, you need fewer tankers. And think about this from your organization, you will have a heretic running your organization saying things like this, how do you react is my question. So Vok would ask them to consider and reconsider their current purchasing plans. In return, some marine people would tell him to come back in three months. The boss is away in Japan ordering ships and the number two man is in ordering some ships in Finland, they would say. Others would just burst out in frustration. I don't know whether to hire or build more tankers or get rid of the whole fleet. I thought your job as planners was to tell me what the future would be. And yet, <laughs> and yet others would say, well, we've looked at all these scenarios. And even if we do believe them, we have such marvelous advantages with our superior ship designs that we don't need to stop ordering. Vok began to grumble that the scenarios had been like water on a stone, like you said earlier on art dissipating without leaving a single trace. Other staffers recalled him saying that nothing was more difficult than changing the mind of a Dutch engineer. Vok began to think of his scenario method as a loud and ineffective machine, like a vacuum cleaner wasting 40% of its energy in producing heat and noise. What was missing, he would later say was existential effectiveness which he defined by quoting the Japanese proverb, when there is no break, not even the thickness of a hair between a man's vision and his action. To affect behavior in a useful way, he decided the task was not just to argue with managers or to lay out facts before, before them, but to influence their mental maps to enlighten them, broaden their perceptions, and thus help them change the underlying assumptions they held about the way the world worked. I thought that was absolutely beautiful and absolutely nailed it. I'll share the little excerpt then get your commentary on it and we'll wrap up PR Vach. We could go on, we could do a whole series on Vach himself. So let's, uh, let me tee this one up. Would you remember having seen at your television screen three years ago, heavy floods in India, which killed hundreds of people around the Ganges? I happen to know the Ganges pretty well from spring to Mars. It's an extraordinary river. Once you have seen it, you don't forget it. If you see 
heavy monsoon rains at the upper part of the Ganges, you can anticipate with certainty that within two days, something extraordinary is going to happen at Rishikesh, which is at the foothill of the Himalayas. And then four days later in Allahabad, northeast of Delhi. And again, two, three days later in Benares. This is not fortune telling. This is not crystal ball gazing. This is merely describing future implication of something which has already happened. And the first thing we do in scenario planning is to identify predetermined elements. And there are always predetermined elements in a situation. But let me stress, the most important are not the obvious predetermined. They are the system predetermined. I'm going to give you some examples later. I would like to stress, this is a painstaking exercise. Sometimes people used to associate scenario planning with a kind of brainstorming exercise of the imagination. No, the first starting point, the foundation of scenario are predetermined elements. Let me quote you another little piece of my wisdom collection. It's in French, I'm going to translate it, but I will first start in French, it's so much clearer. Un fait mal observé est plus pernicieux qu'un mauvais raisonnement. A poorly observed fact is more treacherous than wrong reasoning. From my experience, most of the errors in future-oriented study do not come from wrong reasoning. They come from poorly, insufficiently observed facts. You may not have heard exactly what he says. He says the, the important thing you're looking for are predetermined elements. And these are not crystal ball gazing. This is, this is not a prediction. This is seeing what's already happened and the effects that it has to have. And your ability to determine what is predetermined and what is not is one of the most powerful things that you bring as a professional in any endeavor. And it depends on your ability to gather the facts and then make sense of them. And everybody's going to do that in their own way. And if we're wise, it's interesting. Pierre talked about wisdom. I had forgotten that. If we're wise, we will not ever assume we have it down. We'll assume that no matter what, there is something just a little bit over the horizon that we have to learn to see. And then when it appears, there'll be something behind that and something behind that. And sooner or later, we'll recognize that the thing we're trying to see is all around us and behind us. And then we'll maybe be more <laughs> <laughs> maybe we'll see that on the other side ah now i got it can i go back and try again <laughs> well, depending art, on your belief system exactly um, <laughs> art i have uh, just one final thing to say and it's a way to thank you for your time and for uh, today as well for this beautiful session and i felt this was a beautiful way to finish this particular episode pierre vach made a point of seeking out remarkable people as he called them, around the world. The phrase remarkable people in French means not so much gifted people, but people with unconventional insight 
acute observers with keen, unending curiosity who pay constant attention to the way the world works. And I want to thank you, Artliner, for being a remarkable person and sharing your remarkable insights with us. Author of The Age of Heretics, Art Kleiner, thank you for joining us in part four. Thank you, Aiden, and uh, same to you. It's been a remarkable conversation, and I look forward to knowing what people think. For those who want to reach out to me, it's um, probably the best way is through kleinerpowell.com. And I want to thank our sponsor, Zai. Zai is a global fintech that is innovating within its area of expertise, building integrated financial services for digital native and non native businesses, check them out at hellozai.com. And I'll see you next week.